child-enduring torment beyond her wildest dreams, scientific egos, and a language theory put to the test. These are the oddities that we'll explore today. What's up, everyone, and welcome back to Oddities Explored, the podcast that believe in a consistent upload schedule that I can't seem to follow. I apologize on having to delay this episode. I was having issues uploading it, so I figured I'd just wait on it and see if I could make it any better. Either way, I'm back and ready to finish up the story of Jeannie. Before going on any further, I'd like to apologize for making this episode two parts. I really thought I would have needed two parts when I was researching. There was a lot there, but it looks like I really didn't need to do that. But you live and you learn. Uh, If anyone's new here and listen to me bash my own show for about 30 seconds, I want to say welcome, and I hope you enjoy the episode and the show itself. Uh, Everyone, please consider following the Instagram. It's oddities-explored, all one word, so I can update you guys about delays and such. And please consider following the show so you guys never miss an episode. So with that out of the way, let's dive right back into the story of Jeannie, the feral child. So Jeannie's story unfortunately picks up in a custody dispute. Dr. Jean Butler started trying to take Jeannie on day trips to her house, and eventually she claimed that she caught rubella. Rubella is also called three-day measles, and it's a mild infection that usually has little to no symptoms, but it's pretty contagious. So Butler claimed that she had to keep Jeannie with her to keep the rest of the hospital from becoming infected. This was met with some resistance, however, as the hospital didn't really believe Butler. The dispute ended pretty quickly, however, because the hospital believed it was in Jeannie's best interest to live with Butler rather than isolation in the hospital. And then, before I move any farther in this story, I'd kind of like to elaborate on Jeannie and why she really captivated scientists. I teased this last episode, but I figure I'll give a little bit more of an idea right now. So, Jeannie is the first child that could be used ethically to test the theory of critical period hypothesis by Eric Lenneberg. In this hypothesis, the learning language had a critical period of anywhere between 2 and 13 years old. This period coincided with the development of the brain before puberty and stated that if there wasn't a proficient amount of language stimulation within this window, that the individual would fully never master a language. So this theory has been debated heavily by scientists and Jeannie was able to fulfill a role as a child past this time frame. So, obviously, this couldn't really have been tested ethically before Jeannie, as isolating a child from humans like Jeannie's father could have detrimental psychological effects on innocent children, like it did with Jeannie, unfortunately. But Jeannie, in this respect, gave many hope to either disprove this theory or add more of a backbone behind it. So, Butler observed many improvements on Jeannie's language acquisition, and according to her notes, even Butler's boyfriend commented on it. Jeannie also had stopped attacking herself and instead used words or redirected the aggression to objects. This is all according to Butler's notes, however. The hospital didn't really have too much in terms of their own notation to observe what Butler was claiming. So you have to take it as you may. Uh, Jeannie's hatred of dogs and cats continued to no avail, and Jeannie really didn't show any sign of budging there. And then Butler's stay unfortunately didn't continue to be accepted, however, as many at the hospital started disputing Butler's intentions. Butler became increasingly controlling on who saw Jeannie, and when as far as going to ban certain doctors from seeing her. Eventually, Butler's foster child application was denied, and it was unclear how much the hospital really had to do with this. 
One piece that stuck with me while researching this was that several of the scientists claiming Butler would say that Jeannie was going to make her famous, so it made me somewhat skeptical of Jeannie's progress in Butler's notes, and it also made me question a lot of Butler's personal motives. Did she really care about Jeannie, or did she care about the potential fame that could come from it? Jeannie's second foster home actually came from David and Marilyn Wrigler. David went on record to say he didn't intend to be Jeannie's foster parent, but if no one else assumed the role that he would. With the hospital, authorities, and Jeannie's mother all involved in the decision making, the Wrigler's guardianship seemed to make much more sense. There didn't really seem to be a conflict of interest. The research was documented for the four-year stay, and it was originally meant to be three months. So it looked like it mattered more to Wrigler that Jeannie was being taken care of correctly. So at least one scientist here cared more about Jeannie's needs rather than making them famous. Jeannie's behavior in this time frame furthered skepticism of Butler as Jeannie fell into her old habits. She once again began hurting herself and would have a lot more frequent tantrums. Uh, Jeannie's fear of dogs and cats had also returned and hid a lot from the regular's dog. But another weird thing is that Jeannie had no reaction to temperature, something that didn't really make any sense to scientists. But with time, Marilyn was able to make behavioral strides with Jeannie, working to calm her destructive behavior. She eventually was able to slow Jeannie's self-harm and was even able to help Jeannie indicate the difference between frustration and full anger. Uh, the Wrigler's dog also had a puzzle, or a piece in this puzzle, rather, and he was used to try and acclimate Jeannie to animals. And though Jeannie seemed to tolerate their dog, she still feared other dogs and all cats. Jeannie also made strides of being talked to as well. She went from not responding and acknowledging others when they talk directly to her to showing interest when others actually speak to her. After some time with the Wrigglers, Jeannie started going to school for the mentally impaired as well. And towards the end of the stay with the Wrigglers, David reported she had made significant improvements in all aspects that scientists were testing. And she retained many of the qualities of someone who was unsocialized rather than isolated. In terms of language, Jeannie also had made great strides, including many new words in these four years. Jeannie showed that she had the ability to name several things around her and retain the names of many everyday objects. In terms of grammar, however, Jeannie struggled immensely. Her sentences were usually broken, not using the correct tense, and the sentences were short in length. A quote from Jeannie talking about her father's abuse goes as following. Father hit arm, big wood, Jeannie cry, not spit. Father, hit face, spit. Father hit big stick. Father is angry. Father hit genie big stick. Father take peace wood hit cry. Father make me cry. Father is dead. By the end of the stay in 1975, scientists had concluded genie made far more progress than they believed possible, but many gaps were still left to fill. Unlike her verbal communication, her nonverbal communication actually excelled. Jeannie had developed gestures to convey emotions or events, and if the situation was too complex for her vocabulary, she would act something out or draw pictures. Her nonverbal communication was so good that the Wrigglers believed Jeannie should learn sign language in 1974, and actually enrolled her in a class for it. Like I mentioned in the last episode, Jeannie was receiving language tests, measuring where in her brain that the language was being absorbed, and I'd like to take a quick second to revisit that. Uh, through the years, researchers concluded Jeannie was only using the right hemisphere of her brain to acquire language, 
and was only really hearing and understanding language in her left ear. Doing a bit of research, I found that there's something called the Broca's area of the brain. I don't know if I'm saying that right. It's either Broca's or Broca's. I think I'm going to say Broca's. So this was located in the left hemisphere of the brain and is used for both speech production and articulation. Revisiting that quote from Jeannie earlier, I think it's safe to say that the Broca's area was hardly being used during development and could go on explaining Jeannie's fragmented sentences. I have a bit more I want to say on this and critical language theory, but I'm going to save it towards the end, so just bear with me. Additional testing of Jeannie brings us back to the question of Jeannie's mental age. When scientists took away the language portion of these tests, Jeannie measured around even or even past her real age. She was proficient in spatial awareness, understanding objects through touch, and getting from one place to another with no help of a map or any sort of location markers. These are all primarily right hemisphere functions of the brain, and this led scientists to believe that her brain underwent right hemisphere specialization due to not using her left hemisphere growing up. Her left hemisphere tests put her way below her age, staying near that of a two or three year old. Unfortunately, in 1974, funding to study Jeannie ceased. Reasons cited emphasized a lack of a clear reason for the research. Scientists had the obvious goal of testing critical language theory, but how much can one grant to study before it doesn't really matter? Isolating children to this degree isn't very common, so how would this information be helpful and practical? So, here's where I'd like to give my conjecture of critical language theory and what I think Genius Studies gave us. When Eric Lenenberg created the critical language theory, he made it a glaring point that if language wasn't acquired in this period, that a person could never master the language. While Jeannie was studied, Susan Curtis argued that, even if humans possess the innate ability to acquire language, Jeannie demonstrated the necessity of early language stimulation in the left hemisphere of the brain to start. She went on to propose that maybe the critical period isn't as strong as Lenenberg thought, but I think there's some backing as to why Jeannie's grammar rarely progressed. So what do I think? I tend to agree with Curtis. Jeannie's language did make decent progress while at the hospital and with the Rigglers, so I don't think Jeannie was as hopeless as Lenenberg believed she would be. Her grammar really didn't do well throughout the years, though. It didn't really change, and if anything, it just kind of stayed the same. So my overall conclusion, it's that it's less of learning words in a language, but more of the construction of said language. For example, I can give everyone here a list of words from a sentence in a random order, but unless you understand the rules of word placement and sentence structure, it would look correct either way. You can understand the word, but understanding word placement is completely different. So this has led to much debate on the theory, and I'm not going to dive too much further. I just wanted to give my own conjecture, so I'm going to leave you all with that. Jeannie increased her vocabulary, but not her grammar. So let's move on to Jeannie post-grant study. Well, the start really isn't that great. When Jeannie became 18, she moved back in with her mother. The Rigglers approved this, and Susan Curtis actually continued to study her past the NIMH grant. Jeannie's mother was definitely not the best choice as a parent, in my opinion, and time backed that as Jeannie was relinquished to a foster home. The part of this that gets me is why on earth would Jeannie's mother not contact the Rigglers to take care of Jeannie again? They seemed like more qualified candidates, and they were never even asked, so they couldn't give their own conjecture on if they even want to do it or not. It just seems like such a rash decision, really. 
And even worse than this, moving into a foster home unfortunately subjected Jeannie once again to violent abuse. The caretakers beat Jeannie and used Jeannie's mother as a threat, claiming that if she didn't act better, she would never see her mother again. Luckily, Curtis kept seeing Jeannie weekly, noting the negative change in her condition and fighting for months to save her. In 1977, she was removed from the abusive home and continued to bounce around the foster homes, treating her better, but not well enough to make Jeannie thrive. Now, there is some controversy from 1976 to 1984 I'd like to run through real quick. I don't want to make this a main concern, I just want to talk about it because it is part of the story. So, this started when Susan Curtis released a dissertation called Jeannie, a psycholinguistic study of a modern-day wild child. This upset Jeannie's mother, and she sued the hospital and many involved in Jeannie's care, including Curtis and the Wrigglers. She claimed that the paper breached patient confidentiality, and it felt like she was grasping at straws. It later came out that Jean Butler, Jeannie's first caretaker, allegedly influenced Jeannie's mother into doing this. Butler had massive conflicts of interest from the beginning, and it honestly annoyed me how much she kept meddling in things through all of my research. Some people just let the idea of fame destroy them, and honestly, it's just sad. Once Jeannie's mother gave her to foster homes in 78, Jeannie continued to bounce from home to home. Unfortunately, this once again subjected Jeannie to that abuse that I mentioned earlier. The mistreatment of Jeannie lasted until around 1993, when she was put into a private facility that is reportedly treating her very well. Both Curtis and the Wrigglers did everything they could to keep studying and caring for Jeannie during this time as well. In 2016, it was reported that Jeannie was living in an undisclosed facility in California for mentally underdeveloped adults. She is reportedly happy and healthy and can still communicate well in sign language. For Jeannie's sake, I hope that she can finally live the rest of her days safely. She was subject to way too much torture in her life, and she was so undeserving of it. So that's the story of the feral child, Jeannie. I found out about her a couple years ago, and the story both interested me and made me quite sympathetic towards her. I want to once again apologize for the delay of the episode. I was having trouble getting it up. Uh, thank you to everyone who supported me through this podcast and continue to support me through this podcast. You guys listening every week, commenting, and giving me other ideas are awesome. Uh, I don't want to try and spoil anything, but next week I'm going to move on to true crime, and I'm excited to once again move to a different subject matter altogether. I hope everyone has a great week, and I'll hopefully be back Friday with another episode. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>